from the moment that Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, chose their own way in the garden, a relational divide was established because the unholy could not be in the presence of the holy. And so God's plan of redemption began to unfold, which we've been seeing here in the book of Revelation. And then from the moment that Moses led Israel out of their bondage in Egypt, Yahweh promised, make a sanctuary, a temple for me, he said, and I will dwell with you. But the unholy could not be in the presence of the holy, at least not without some very special provisions. Still, though, Yahweh promised one day, I will live with you and walk with you. I will be your God and you will be my people. But still, a chasm existed between the two because the the trivial could not stand in the presence of the significant. And so the Son of God became man and lived in humility, died in disgrace, and rose again in glory. And now the Apostle John, here at the end of Revelation, seeing something new, Here's the declaration that changes everything for the rest of history. This is Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake, of, in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray again, as we always do, as we gather on a Sunday morning, that you would give us your spirit. Help us, Lord, to understand your word, because we, we acknowledge that if you don't, this will just be digits and fuzzy distraction to us. Father, we pray that that would not be so. Would you allow for us to see clearly and to hear, not my words, but yours, to our hearts by your spirit? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Two years ago, you may or may not remember this, but two years ago, we spent eight Sunday mornings consecutively working through in sermons four 
big theological pillars that, that really form a backbone of what we call the gospel and the questions that front those pillars. And the Apostle Paul offers, of course, answers to each of those questions. Those questions, you might remember, begin like this. The first question is, how can I know what's true? Every person is asking that question. Even if they don't ask it outright with those words, they're thinking it in their mind, maybe even in their heart. How can I know what's true in this world in which I live? And the Christian's answer for that, of course, is Scripture. It's what we believe about the Bible. After all, Paul's answer to a young church is that all Scripture is God-breathed. And because it's God's very breath, because of the nature of God who gave it, it is true. The next question was, how can I be reconciled to God? Or if, if you consider that you're not a Christian, perhaps, how can I be reconciled to the reality of the world in which I live? Because things are evidently broken. Things are not exactly right. Things are not how I think they ought to be. And so how am I to be reconciled? The, the Christian's answer to that is what we call, of course, justification. And Paul's, one of Paul's many answers to that is that God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the, the swap that we make with the righteous one, Jesus, and that is how God justifies us, reconciles us to himself, that he doesn't just forgive, he actually reconciles, he does the work of reconciliation in that. The third question is, then how can I actually really change? Because I know there are things about me that need to be different. And how can I actually change? The Christian's answer for that is sanctification. Paul's answer, put off the old and put on the new, which is created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. The gospel calls us not just to believe, it calls us to change, to be made new, to put off the old and to put on the new. That's sanctification. The fourth question, though, is what the apostle comes to in this picture in Revelation. The fourth question is this. Just what do I have to look forward to anyway? If I'm reconciled to God knowing what's true, and if my life, myself, is actually changing, well, what next? What do I have to look forward to? And the answer in the Christian life is glorification. And that's what we find in Revelation 21 the apostle actually gets to see a movie trailer of sorts. If, if you want to think about it that way, the verses that we just read, think of it as a movie trailer. John gets to see visually the coming reality of Paul's answer to that question to another young church that was struggling with the tribulation of their own lives, and that answer was this. This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That was Paul's answer to a young church that was struggling with the tribulation that surrounded them as they wondered, what do we have to look forward to anyway in this Christian life? Paul said, there's an eternal weight of glory coming your way, a weight of glory that's absolutely necessary if the promise of God is to be fulfilled because... Those without glory cannot exist in the presence of the one who is glory. So, that presses a question on us then. What is glory? 
at least as far as the Bible speaks of it. What is it after all? Because when we think of the word glory, maybe, maybe you are like me and you think of things like athletic feats. That's where my mind goes when I think of glory. I tend to think of something like a, a double buzzer beater in the March Madness championship game. You know, North Carolina hits an off-balance three-point shot with 4.7 seconds left on the clock to tie the game. Glory. They think that they're now going to overtime, which they'll surely win and take the championship. But then within 4.7 seconds, Villanova goes the length of the court and hits the shot as the buzzer sounds. And glory, the confetti drops from the sky, and now the Wildcats are champions. That, to me, is glory. That's not glory to the Bible. The Bible's concept of glory is not so much like that. It's actually a little bit more like when you walk through a spider web unwittingly. Have you ever done that? I've heard a comedian's sketch about that, and it can be kind of funny to think about. If you watch somebody walk through a spider web from a distance, and you can't see the spider web, you can only see them, and they start going crazy and screaming and wondering. You don't know what's going on with it. They're, they're having some kind of psychological breakdown. But the glory of the Bible is something like that, because something of great substance, like a person, has entered into the space of something with little substance, a spider web, and the one of little substance is destroyed. The word glory in the Bible comes from a Hebrew word, kavod, which means weight, substance, matter, significance, weight, as in W-E-I-G-H-T, not the W-A-I-T type, weight. Something that that has some significance and profundity to it. That's what biblical glory actually is. And you can think of the Bible stories that you know from the Old Testament. When Yahweh shows up on the scene, what tends to happen? Thunder and lightning and earthquakes. Things begin to break. People begin to run in fear because a big man has walked through the spider web. The weight disrupts that that lacks weight. And so Solomon, in Chronicles, prayed a prayer of dedication. He had finished building the temple. You heard this prayer moments ago in our worship service. And Solomon prays, giving thanks to God for this magnificent house that Solomon has now built for God's name. And it's a magnificent house. It's large. It's intricate in design. It's expensive. It cost a lot of money back in that day. It's built of stone and cedar and tons of gold. It's an amazing building that Solomon has built. And yet Solomon, in praying this dedication to God, begins to have doubts. Did you hear them? What did he say? As he prayed, he began to say, But will God indeed dwell with man on earth? You know what Solomon was suggesting there. No way. There's no way that Yahweh is ever going to dwell here, even in this huge, magnificent building. Solomon went on. He said, Heaven can't contain you, O Lord. How much less this house that I've built. There's no way that that which seems glorious to us could ever be glorious enough to contain your glory, your weight, your substance. Solomon was a very wise man. He understood glory. He understood the substance of God and he understood that for the dwelling place of God to actually be with man would require something entirely new. And that's what this last vision brings to us. And if 
we're careful with it, then it ought to unravel the culture-induced frivolity with which we tend to think about heaven. Because heaven is not a number of things. Heaven is not an eternal quiet time. Do you ever think that that might be what it is? Heaven is not that. Heaven is not an everlasting choir practice. What a dreadful thought. Heaven is not that. Heaven is not some wispy civilization in the clouds either. Heaven is none of those things. This is actually a picture of what another theologian has called life after life after death. When Yahweh himself will dwell with us as our God. And this fulfilled promise of glory brings with it great blessings. One of those great blessings is a comprehensive renovation. So the vision begins. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The ultimate destination of Christians, I I think I said this last week, and, and you need to know this, the ultimate destination of Christians is not heaven. Easter should teach us that every year when we come to it and and confess and profess that I believe in the resurrection of the body. Heaven is not ultimately where you're headed. Ultimately where your hope lies is the new heavens and the new earth because your body will have substance and weight and glory about it. In the same way, the home where you will live will also be comprehensively renovated. Paul wrote about it in Romans 8. He said there that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until now. It's as if the whole creation knows what's coming better than we do. The creation is groaning, anticipating its own renovation one day. And the newness of this, I think, is not so much the newness of chronology, but of quality. Something is qualitatively going to change because the old will have passed away and the new will have come. But it's not that this old earth is simply going to be done away with. The Apostle Peter wrote some sort of obscure small letters towards the back of the Old Testament that we often don't pay a whole lot of attention to. And Peter says some crazy things in his letters. There in 2 Peter chapter 3, he writes to his friends that he wants to stimulate them to wholesome thinking. And you might wonder, what is an apostle going to do in order to stimulate his friends to wholesome thinking? He wants their minds to be set on something that, that matters, right? And so what does he begin to talk about, to write about? He says, I want you to know that the day of the Lord is coming. And you need to understand something of what that day of the Lord is going to be like. And so he draws back into the Old Testament. He says, just as the world of old was by water deluged and destroyed, think Noah, by that same word of God, the heavens and earth of our day are stored up for fire. Water then, fire in the future. Right now, God is patient, Peter explains, because he wants to pastorally care for his friends. God is being patient right now. He wants for everyone to come to repentance. He's waiting and waiting. He's he's patiently waiting. The day of the Lord will come, 
We don't know when, but God is patiently waiting. And on that day when it does come, Peter goes on to explain. He says, The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be set on fire and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed, burned up, laid bare. And since this will happen according to God's promise, Peter says, We look forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Now, in comparing all of this to Noah and the flood, I think what Peter is after and what John's vision comports with is that this is not total destruction so much as comprehensive purging. The spider webs are being burned away. Now, this is not new to you and me because we realize in our own Christian life when we use this language from the Bible that it's happening already. When the first resurrection becomes a blessing to you, that is when you become a Christian, you're born again, you have new life in Christ, then the purging begins, doesn't it? The fires of heaven, so to speak, begin to burn away the spider webs of your own life. All that's not godly or substantial or weighty, all that ultimately doesn't matter begins to be burned away in your own soul, in your own daily life. Now, you, like me, I'm sure, struggle mightily at times to hold on to some pieces of that because there are parts of it that you really love. But the Holy Spirit won't allow it. Ultimately, in sanctification, the Holy Spirit is purging your life of those things that simply won't be accommodated in the new heavens and the new earth. C.S. Lewis, you cannot preach on this passage without quoting from C.S. Lewis because he wrote so fascinatingly about these sorts of things. And maybe you've written, read his, uh, the book that he wrote called The Great Divorce. It's a, a fascinating fantasy, a story of hell and heaven and those people who are struggling to figure these things out. And in this fantasy, a man takes a, an unwitting bus ride to heaven from hell. It's a fantasy. I don't think these things actually happen. But it does give us a great picture. And the man rides the bus. The bus goes on a day trip to heaven in order to investigate and let these people see if this might be a place they'd rather live forever than in hell, which they don't entirely understand. And the people step off the bus when it arrives in heaven. And the main character begins to recognize that the people who had been on the bus with him are actually like ghosts. And he realizes, as he kind of considers himself, that he actually is more like a ghost himself. In comparison to all that's there, he says, the light and the grass and the trees here were different. They were made of some different substance, so much more solid than things in our country that men were like ghosts here by comparison. And the story goes on, the, the, the ghost people began to explore a little bit as far as they can, but they have a hard time walking because the grass in heaven is so substantial and weighty that it pierces their feet. It's like walking barefoot over a gravel road. You tiptoe across because it hurts. They can hardly even walk on the grass in this place. And then the people who reside here appear, and they come, and they're called the solid ones. And they come and they begin to try to persuade these ghost-type ones to stay. And it's somewhat of a challenge because 
It's so hard for these ghost ones to stay in this place. It's such a place of substance, and they have no substance about them. It's a quirky fantasy, but it's a great picture of glory and of the comprehensive renovation that the old age has gone and the, the new age has come. But that doesn't mean that the, that the old is now completely unrecognizable. We have a, an old dining room set in our house, in the dining room, of course, table and chairs. And we inherited them from Mary's older brother who inherited them from their parents who bought them, I think, in 1960 when they got married. It's an old wooden dining room table and chairs, and they are, do the math, 56 years old. And we began to realize over the past six months that the chairs were incredibly uncomfortable. We had recovered them when we first got them some years ago, but we didn't tear them up and find out what was inside. We just recovered them. And we began to realize we can't sit here. The, the, the kids would complain, dinner's too long. We've been sitting here for 10 minutes. I don't want to sit here any longer. It's so uncomfortable in these chairs. We knew we had to recover them. And so we, we tore them open and discovered that the cushioning inside, 50 years old, had crumbled and turned into dust and begin to shift into piles in different places underneath your backside. And it made for a very uncomfortable dining experience. And so we removed all that. We threw it away and we put new cushions and new covers on them and put them back together. They're the same chairs. They're entirely recognizable, but they're completely different. And they're completely comfortable. It's amazing what happens when that complete renovation occurs. All that lacks substance, is burned up and blown away. And there's so much of that surrounding us and in us. But all that lacks weight will be done away with in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, verse 8 is an interesting verse. I want to jump into that real quickly here before we move on to the next point because it's sort of perplexing. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, and so on, John gives this list, well, he receives this list from God himself of all the the unsightly sorts of elements that are not going to have their place in the new heavens and the new earth. And I read that, and I begin to think in my moralistic sort of lens, yeah, you know, these sort of people, they shouldn't be there. But then I begin to think of it a little bit differently, and I realize, you know, if I pause for a moment on each of those, I begin to realize... I think I go eight for eight on that list. I think this list describes me in my heart of hearts, and sometimes it doesn't take going too far down into my heart to find them. I go eight for eight on this list, and you let me stand up here and preach on Sunday morning, so I don't know what it says about you. So what about this list? I mean, I think the point is that these are examples of things that have no weight. These are things that are destructive and damaging and harmful and painful. These are things that carry no substance in the new heavens and the new earth. Therefore, there is no place for these things. And those who have invested their lives in such things, this is a last invitation. This is an invitation to turn away from such frivolity and uselessness and turn to what's weighty and what matters. Because on the day of the Lord you too will be blown away with these things if that's where you remain. But if you're in Christ, you will be comprehensively, completely renovated. These things will be burned out of you and out of the new earth as well so that there you find also tender consolation. 
the, the, the passage moves on in verse 4 here. It's an important verse for us because it's good for us to think about what will be in the new heavens and the new earth. It's also good for us to think about what will not be there. Do, do you ever wonder what jobs, what sort of jobs will not exist in the new heavens and the new earth? I mean, that's an interesting sort of exercise for you to ponder, and I don't have all the answers for sure, but, you know, you got to wonder, will there, will there be doctors in the new heavens and the new earth? Will there be doctors? I mean, if there are, it won't be so that they can heal diseases because there will be no diseases. But I kind of wonder if there will be doctors there, perhaps, because they'll be studying and researching and understanding all of God's amazing creation, and they'll be understanding more and more than they could even fathom right now. Maybe, you who are doctors, maybe you won't be out of a job. It'll just be totally different. Lawyers. I kind of think there won't be lawyers in heaven. Do you think? Not that you who are lawyers won't be there, but you just won't be lawyers when you get there. Because we won't need laws. Our hearts will be completely aligned with God, and there will be no need for such things. Police, politicians, will there be such things? Crime scene investigators, there will be no such thing as a crime scene in heaven and no need to investigate it. Trash collectors, insurance agents, no insurance in heaven because there's no fear of damage or loss, right? Missionaries, morticians, everything will be different, won't it? Because there will be so many things that are not there. One thing that conspicuously is missing Verse 1 tells us is a little bit bothersome if you think about it for a moment. And the sea was no more. Does that kind of bother you? Are you kind of disappointed? I mean, are you thinking, all right, summer's coming up soon and we have a trip planned to the beach. And so maybe we ought to enjoy it now while we can because in eternity there will be no such thing as the ocean. No, that's not the case. Okay, remember the, the poetic nature of the book of Revelation. I mean... Remember what the sea produced in the imagery of this vision that John has seen. The sea produces what's evil. The, the evil comes out of the sea in the imagery of the, the movie trailer that John gets to see, that he gets to witness. The ocean produces these things. Poetically speaking, the point here is simply that the door is closed on evil. There will, there will be no more evil in the new heavens and the new earth. You have to remember the fulfillment of the the promise. God himself will be with them as their God. And what will his presence then mean? It will mean, verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. For our call to worship this morning, we used Isaiah's version of this. The prophet Isaiah, many years before John saw this vision, had his own vision and word from the Lord, very similar to this one. Isaiah had said, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall be remembered no more, nor shall they even come to mind, Isaiah projected to his people. In other words, the things that caused trouble, the things that brought pain, the things that robbed you of sleep, in the new heavens and the new earth, they won't even come to mind anymore. Even if at this time they do in very heavy ways. A friend of mine on Facebook this week posted, and I don't know why he did this, it was so painful to me, but he posted for his St. Louis Cardinals, because he's a Cardinals fan, 
a video recapping the final plays of the 2011 Game 6 World Series. If you remember that, the Rangers were there. And David Freeze stepped to the plate for the Cardinals. The Rangers were leading. All they needed to do was catch the ball for one more out, and they'd have a World Series title. He had a line drive to right field, and Nelson Cruz chased it down to the wall and didn't get there just barely. And the Cardinals came back and won the World Series. My friend posted this online as a video, and I saw it, and I commented jokingly. I said, why this blasphemy? How is it that you dredge up these memories for me? I said to him, this is like a morgul blade in my Texas Ranger flesh. <laughs> now, if you know your Lord of the Rings, then you know what a morgul blade is. And I've told you a number of times in Revelation, you've got to put on your Chronicles of Narnia glasses or your Lord of the Rings glasses in order to really understand Revelation. A morgul blade was... Uh, a, a knife, a blade from the darkest part of the evilest place in Middle-earth. And Frodo, the hero of the story, was stabbed with a Morgul blade at one point. And even years later, he, he lamented that. He felt the pain. It never really went away for him. Now, the Rangers lost in the World Series is totally trivial. It's a trivial way for me to get to something that's not trivially, trivial at all for us. Some of you have wounds inflicted by morgul blades. Wounds that will not heal in this life. Someone close to you died. Maybe your husband or wife of many years died in their old age, even peacefully. And at this point in your life now, you miss them so deeply that it feels like a piercing pain in your heart. Maybe someone you, you cared about who died at a time when they shouldn't have died. Maybe even a child. And the memory of their death comes back to you in waves. It robs you of sleep and you simply can't escape it. Maybe you were betrayed by someone close to you. Maybe you risked yourself for the sake of a relationship and then that person didn't reciprocate or even betrayed you to an extent that caused you shame and fear in the world around you. Maybe you failed at your job. And so you feel completely inconsequential. As Isaiah said in his version of this, you feel like you're toiling in vain, that you're planting and others are eating what you plant. Some wounds simply don't heal in this world. They don't. Because this world is not the place for real consolation. Why do you think people who live in Central America and Mexico are often trying so hard to immigrate to this country? Because they look around themselves and they see the pain and the poverty and the corruption and the hopelessness of their circumstances. And they're just like you and me. They long to get themselves back into the garden. That's where they're supposed to be, after all. And so... They travel here, if they can. But once they get here, it's not long before they realize this isn't the garden either. This place has its problems. I met a man not long ago from Afghanistan. He lives here now with his wife and six young sons. 
And I had a conversation with him. We talked about him coming from there and to here and what life was like. And he kind of laughed. He said, you know, my friends in Afghanistan, they look at America and they think, well, all you got to do is move to America and you'll be a millionaire like all the Americans are. He said, I've been here for a year and I'm not a millionaire yet. It doesn't come that easily because there is no real consolation in this place. This world won't console you. It won't even heal your wounds. But in the new heavens and the new earth, there's renovation and there is consolation. And because of that, there is also gracious restoration. What does John go on to say? Verse 5, the one who's on the throne is speaking to him at this point. And, and God himself says to John, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. It's much like the Apostle Paul who Sometimes in his letters will say those sorts of words. This is a trustworthy saying. And what he means is, what I'm about to, to say to you is, for emphasis, this thing is something you need to remember, as though the rest of it weren't. But this is really, really important. And what is it that the Lord says to him? He says, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who endures, and, and Revelation is always exhorting us to endure, isn't it? You heard that surely many times as we've gone through this book. The one who endures will need, will need the restoring refreshment of the water of life. And there is no cost for it, even though this water was very costly. And the one who conquers will have this heritage. The Lord says, I will be his God and he will be my son. She will be my daughter. Now, again, C.S. Lewis. Another thing that he wrote about this sort of thing is an essay called The Weight of Glory, which, again, is really important reading for you. I encourage you and exhort you to take a look at it sometime. And Lewis explains there, I think one of his ideas, I think is so helpful, he says, that glory, in a biblical sense, is actually being noticed by or known by God. That God pays attention to us. That he, he, he acknowledges the weight of our significance being in His image and reconciles us to Himself. He, he knows us. After all, Paul says, the man who loves God is known by God. Glory, in other words, is that God's fatherly face might actually shine upon us. In Exodus 33, Moses has a fascinating experience. It's one of the most famous stories in the Bible. There in Exodus 33, Moses is, is pleading for Yahweh's presence as the Israelites proceed on their journey into the wilderness. The, the, the people had just rebelled and, and God had had um, responded in the fury of his wrath against them, and Moses was in despair, and, and he pleads for Yahweh. He says, please be with us as we go. And the Lord says to him, I promise, I am with you. And Moses presses on. He says, then please show me your glory. Please show me your weight. Please show me how substantial you are so that I'll know that this is not going to be in vain. It's a very bold request. And the Lord says to him, of course, what? He says, you can't see my face. Man shall not see my face and live. Not that it was forbidden that one might look upon God's face, but it was unbearable. It was like saying, you know, 
The astronauts, they walked on the moon, but I want to go walk on the sun. Just let me go walk on the sun. That's an absurdity, isn't it? Before you even get there, you'd be incinerated. It's the same sort of thing. And so the Lord takes Moses and places him in a cleft in the rock, and and his glory passes by, and the Lord explains to him. He says, I'll cover you with my hand and pass by, and then I'll remove my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now, that reaches the end of Exodus 33. The chapter ends right there, and it cuts to a brand new scene. And if you read it carefully, and, and you're recognizing what's going on, and you realize chapter 34 begins an entirely different section, you've got to begin to wonder, I want to know what happened. I mean, what happened? Here's Moses in a cleft in the rock. God's about to pass by and show him his back. He can't see his face, but he's going to see his glory. And then there's nothing else told to us about it. Why? I can only speculate, but I think I can do this safely. The experience was absolutely indescribable. What was Moses going to say at that point? He gazed upon the back of Yahweh, the creator of the universe. What words is he going to put to that? There's nothing he can say because the experience absolutely defied description. And then just a short time later, as the Israelites are about to set off on their way, in Numbers chapter 6, God explains to Moses and his brother Aaron, this is how you're supposed to bless my people Israel. And he gives them one of the the most classic and enduring benedictions that we've ever heard. A benediction is a good word. He gives it to Israel as they're about to set on this journey, and he says to them, this is how you bless my people. You tell them, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Now, Moses must have shuddered at the thought because he knew. I mean, of course, he had stood in the cleft of the rock and gazed upon the back of God. I can't see his face. I'll die. I'll be incinerated. And now God's, God's blessing us with the prospect that he would shine his face upon us and be gracious to us. No way. There's no way that this is going to happen, right? Moses would have a hard time imagining this, but what is the promise that God is fulfilling here for us? It is that the face of the Father might gaze upon the faces of His sons and daughters, not to dreadful ruin, but rather in gracious restoration. Our expectation of glory, as you think about it, there's so much there to think about. So many rabbit trails to chase. You'll have many years to do it. But our expectation of glory should affect a lot of what we think of and how we think and act in this world today. And I'll offer one, as C.S. Lewis suggests. He says, we may be tempted to speculate too much about what that glory has in store for us, but we do well to think about what it has in store for other people, for each other, because, he says, all day long, We are, in some degree, helping each other towards one or the other eternal destination. And it's in light of this, he says, that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all our friendships, all our loves, even all our play, and even politics. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Being made in the image of God, you carry the weight and substance of God himself. And God himself is out to restore that 
to reconcile it, to make it new, even as he brings the new heavens and the new earth to bear on us on the day of the Lord in the future. The Lord is at work to demonstrate to us, to persuade us, to call us into living in a world of glory where we in our current state could not possibly exist. But by the grace of Jesus, we one day will. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O Lord, we give you thanks for these good promises and pray that as we come to the communion table, even now that you would grant your spirit to us, increase our faith, Lord, to believe you, to trust you, allow for us to recognize how you call us in Jesus to belong to you, and allow for us, Lord, to attribute to you the glory that only you have. In Jesus' name, amen.